Have you been zombified by your friends? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. I'm your host, Athena Ectipus, psychology professor at ASU and the chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Henrik, Media Outreach Program Manager at ASU and brain and friend enthusiast. Yeah, if you had to choose between brains and friends. Oh, I'd, I'd probably friends without brains, zombie friends, <laughs> you know. Um, so. or, or, or brains without friends. Uh, just in jars? I don't know. That seems lonely. That would be weird. Yeah, okay. Just have my, my... Zombie friends, yes. Sure. All right. So <laughs> today's episode, we talked to Jamie Krems, who is a, a friend expert. I don't know. That's can right. we call her a, a, a friend spurt? No, not really. That didn't no. really work. Well, now we've done it, so we just got to roll with it. <laughs> so we've got our, our resident friend spurt, Jamie Krems, here. Yeah, well, so she was a grad student here in the psychology department at ASU, and now she is an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University. So she's uh, she's fledged, which is great for her, but it sucks because she's not here anymore for us to talk to her all That's the time. That's true, yeah, and, uh, and I think we were both friends with her, and so that yes. was... Uh, right. So, so unfortunately, uh, I had to interview Jamie not here, so you couldn't be here for it. Yes, I, was, I you know, was at a I conference, it. and I was like, Jamie, come, let me interview you. So, so we had the chance to talk about friends and to what extent friends manipulate us. And mm -hmm. is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's kind of both. <laughs> I think that was the, that was the conclusion. Um, but... Uh, I think the ways that friends manipulate us, are, it's interesting to sort of think about like to what extent are they manipulating us for our own good, right? Like it, in a way it kind of ties back a little bit to our puppy apocalypse episode, sure. yeah. right? Because like on some level, when you're being manipulated by people who you're close to, who have shared interests with you, it's like you enjoy coordinating and doing things together. And, you know, that requires some level of, you know, influencing each other. Sure. And so... And it helps you meet your goals and things like that. And right, so, yeah. yeah. But uh -huh. you don't always know, like, are your interests really aligned or are they just pretending? Or I, mean, I guess you kind of get into, like, Game of Thrones kind of territory where it's like, I thought they were my friend, but actually they were just getting close to me to, to try to completely sure, undermine... Sure, to try to sabotage. Yeah, right. So, um. so friends, usually probably good, right? Overall, friends, definitely a good thing. Um, important for us to feel good on a day-to-day -day basis, that we have friends, important for helping us meet our goals. You know, in our evolutionary history, people who didn't have, friend, have friends, like they were totally screwed, right? Sure. Friends so. in general, probably good, but not always. Yeah, I guess that's what we're going to find right. out, right? Yes, the, exactly. Are, is it really that good? Yeah. So yeah. Um, maybe maybe I should change my answer and just go with jars of brains and no more friends. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So so listen on and uh, we'll hear from Jamie Krems about friend zombies. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. 
How are you? I'm exhausted and happy. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. So thank you. This is a really cool thing you're doing. Thank you for being on the show. So, uh, uh, a full disclosure, I feel like there needs to be full disclosure on the show. Jamie is, uh, she used to be a grad student in the program where I'm a professor, and now she has an assistant professor position. Awesome. That's so great. Um, and now that she is not a graduate student in the program that I'm a professor in, I can say, Jamie is my friend. Jamie's my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome, my friend, Jamie. Oh, and Jamie and I also collaborate. So we're friends and collaborators. Um, and, um, and Jamie, you know a little bit about the show. It's about manipulation, about all these things that control our behavior. And it's really um, inspired by everything from kind of parasitology to like, social influence to zombies. So we, we kind of bring it all together and... Um, we try to have fun with it. So you study friendship. Indeed, from, I do. From an evolutionary perspective, from a social perspective. Um, and yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about why you got interested in friendship, why um, it's your thing, why, why you study it. So um, the reason that I started looking into friendship was because I am interested in female social relationships in general. And women's cooperation and competition, as well you know, is really complex, really beautiful. If you start looking at it, it turns out to be a mystery because mm. female friendships are the zenith of pro-sociality. They're so nurturing and tight and emotionally close and characterized by all this self-disclosure. And yet they're shorter lived and more fraught and more tenuous than male friendships. But not our friendship. Well, no, not our uh, friendship. No, of course not our friendship, yeah. Well, we, we have a, I believe that there are distributions where you can have the more female typical versus male typical. I don't think that it's a binary sex or gender kind of thing anymore. Um, I am coming to believe that. So, so we get along because we're more dude-like. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, you can say that. Okay, I went to a women's college. I'm morally credentialing. Yes. <laughs> so, so sex differences. We're, we're there. Like, yes. where it's like the first three minutes of the show, and we're talking about sex differences. So, You're um, welcome, David Bess. So, um, why would there be sex differences in, in friendship? Let's, let's get that out there. Um, from, from my perspective... Women have experienced some different selection pressures than men have for currently. So pregnancy, for example, men don't get pregnant. We do. There's one thing. Um, additionally, we solve some of those problems that both men and women face um, in a slightly different way. So if we're going to aggress and men are going to aggress against same-sex others, we might do it slightly differently than men would. We're less likely, for example, to hit each other in the face, we're much more likely, for example, to gossip behind one another's backs. So given these different pressures and the costs and benefits of cooperation with other group members in particular, I think that women's friendships have taken on a very neat shape that is still a mystery. There is so much descriptive work to be done, let alone the theoretically motivated, experimentalist, fun stuff that we're going to play with forever. Okay, so... Male friendships are about what, from an evolutionary perspective? 
in my mind I, and many others, including people like Richard Wrangham and Jacob V. Hill. Lots and, of very smart people. Yes, lots of very smart people. <laughs> um, it would be about cooperation and group defense. The more males you have that you can band together, the greater your chances are of staying safe, protecting your group, and getting other groups' stuff from females to fruit. And female friendships? What are they about from a sort of evolutionary perspective? Yeah, that's a really good question. Okay, so that's the mystery, and that's why you're looking at this. That is why I want to understand friendship. They are, on the surface, very different than they might be in real life. Are they completely egalitarian? No, but egalitarianism is competitively enforced. So they're competitive and not. They're incredibly close, but incredibly fraught. They are uh, sung as the paradigms of true friendship, and they're also decried as impossibilities. Women can't actually be friends with one another. Okay, I love all of that mellifluous wording that you just used, but let's break it down a little bit. You're saying, Mm -hmm. like, there's a paradox, sort of, in female friendship, right? That on one hand, women talk about friendships as being really egalitarian, that there isn't competition, that it's all cooperation, but that if you look at the reality that doesn't necessarily reflect what women are saying, is that is that what you're... That is exactly what I'm saying. Okay, so they're actually more short-lived, they're, they're not as long-lasting as male friendships on average, is that... That's correct. Yeah, they're okay. not as long-lasting. They, even in a shorter time span of a female best friendship, there are likely to have been more insults to the friendship or things that women might remember as potential damage to the friendship, Hmm. even in a shorter amount of time. Hmm. Males just seem to be more tolerant of those. They matter far, far less. Hmm. So women seem to be a little more sensitive to things that are happening in the friendship and that can kind of disrupt the friendship, but male friendships seem to be more robust to doing things that might offend or... They can punch one another and then go for a beer. Okay. We can give a side eye and then never speak again because of that side eye. Why Mm. is she doing that side eye? Mm. I believe that you came up with this metaphor a few years ago, but male friendships are the jumbo jet. Oh, actually, that was not me. That was my husband. When I was trying to explain to him, like these differences between male and female friendship that we started talking about. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, so male friendship is like a passenger airplane that's like built to be stable and just get from point A to point B, you know, like slow and steady without, you know, getting, you know, off kilter from interference and stuff. But It can take the turbulence, it can carry your bags, it can do 17 different things, feed you, water you, you can pee in it. (laughs) There's women's friendships. Yeah, yeah. And then the women's friendship, the metaphor that he used is that it's like um, a fighter plane. So super high performance, but perhaps inherently not stable because in order to be really high performance in order to be able to respond to Mm -hmm. uh to cues really quickly um it the the fighter plane actually has to be inherently unstable so you have to work to keep it stable um and that's sort of the trade-off so that you could you know maneuver really quickly um 
So it's uh, it's kind of these very two different kind of systems. So that was the analogy that that he used to just sort of talk about it. I love that, and I I think it's right if you conceive of whether it's patrilocality, meaning that males stayed in their natal area and cooperated with kin for a really long time, and so all of their behavior was underlain by R. Or wait, 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 wait. All of their behavior was underlain by R. What does that mean? Genetic relatedness. Sorry about that. Yes. So so men are living with kin more. If, and so they can kind of just like rely like, oh, you're my dudes and I don't have to worry. You're my bros. I don't have to worry if you take something that I wanted. Well, it's not as bad for me as if some stranger took something I wanted necessarily. And I'll probably get it back in return and in kind and some point later. So if you assume that their relationships were currently underlain by those benefits of interacting with kin and or that there are simply more benefits to be had by banding together and cooperating and tolerating one another, growing the size of their group for men than for women, which seems to be the case at least in uh, some non-human primates Mm -hmm. as well as hunter-gatherer women. Um, so either patrilocality or the costs and benefits. Okay, of so so men, it's like Sorry. bigger groups, better. Mm-hmm. Bigger groups are and better. And oftentimes they were with, um, men were with men who were also their kin. And that was just because humans tended to be more patrilocal rather than matrilocal if we look in our, our best guess about human evolutionary history from looking at hunter-gatherers and other small-scale societies. Oh, and then genetics also? Does Mm -hmm. that tell us that there's more more patrilocality? There does seem to be a much stronger case for patrilocality, although some people that study hunter-gatherers would disagree with that. I think Mm -hmm. Kim Hill would disagree with Mm -hmm. that. Okay. All right, so there's still some controversy about this, but, but the basic idea is men's friendships and women's friendships probably had different functions for... Our ancestors, and that can potentially help to explain why they're, they're sort of different. Exactly okay. that. All right, so so let's now that we kind of have like here's you know what you do, and here's the basics about friendship. Um, I want to ask about the zombification side of it, the control side of it. So, do friends manipulate us? Is that part of what happens in in friendship? And like, is that for our own good? Is it mutually beneficial? Is it exploitative? Like, so what's going on in, in friendship in terms of social influence? And is it an inherently manipulative situation? Or is it sort of very like autonomous, mutual goals? What's your sense of that? I certainly believe we manipulate one another, whether or not it's manipulative in a dark way. Uh-huh. I, I would not say. My best guess is that we get what we need out of different people, and particularly for women, since a lot of what we need and want, um, our routes to resources are other people, perhaps more often than men's were. Men just go get meat. We get meat via the men who got the meat. It's a very simplified version of it. Yeah, this um, is like caveman central right the idea that like men are the ones who have the resources and women in order to get the resources have to go through the men 
I, have to go through other women too. We have to go through a lot of other people and men have to go through other people as well. I think mm-hmm. women are much more adept at doing it without mm-hmm. making it seem dirty or conflictual. Mm-hmm. And yet it is quite conflictual. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that like ancestrally there was, it wasn't that men had everything and women didn't have everything, but maybe men were more likely to have high value resources like meat and in order to get those women had to go through men but men also had to go through men in order to get those sometimes so sort of everybody had to go maybe not everybody but a lot of individuals would have to go through other humans in order to get their needs met and there might be some asymmetries between men and women and how much they need to do that but um that we're we're not just vaginas with legs for reproduction certainly Oh, okay. And I'm not That's calling women. Know. I'm not calling women ovulating werewolf hussies. Lady that wrote that article. Did somebody say that you called women that? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, all monsters are welcome on this podcast. So, yeah. you know. I also don't like babies. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay, so you don't like babies, but I love like, dogs. You love dogs. Are you zombies? I actually wanted to ask you about this. So Oops. now that you brought it up, we should talk oh, about man. it. Okay. So, um, uh, two shows ago, we had Clive Wynn on, and we talked awesome. about dogs. And mm-hmm. are you zombified by your dog? Absolutely. They manipulate the living hell out of me. So, and one of the, the things that we were talking about is like, you know, does having a dog, is that like a replacement? for having babies like is it like activating those parental investment mechanisms and like giving you all those like cues that like you're successfully raising so so I had to ask you it because I know you love dogs and like dogs are your thing and I'm just wondering like are you zombified by them I am I have five of them I have five rescue dogs that are all sad and needy and named after scientists and Can I you invest... give us um, some examples of the names of your dogs? There's a Napoleon Yanomamo. Okay, named after? Uh, Nap Shignon, um, who studied the Yanomamo. Okay. Uh, there is Frederica de Laguna, Margot Wilson, General Pitt Rivers. Martin Daly knows that I named that dog that, thinks that I'm a loon. Um, there is a, he's a toy poodle. He had a twitch. He's very anxious. So his name is Twitchard Dogkins. Twitchard Dogkins. Nikola Tesla and Charles Pickles Darwin. Wow. That's a, a, quite a menagerie. I also have a taxidermied ring-tailed lemur named Lemur Casmides. So you like to collect animals, both dead and alive. Uh, non-human animals. Yeah. All about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so your dogs like they control your behavior they do yeah they are the when people talk about their children and how rewarding they find looking at their babies and their babies doing essentially nothing just their babies looking at their own feet yeah i cannot understand it unless i sort of find and replace baby with dog because I could look at Nikola Tesla chew his pawsy yeah. for hours. I have a video of it that's two minutes long. No one else wants to see that, but I find it so inherently rewarding to watch him happily chew his own paw. Wow, you really are zombified by your dogs. Yeah, and they're expensive little zombies because they're all blight blighty. That's why. Mm. But anything they want. 
And I'm the one, I'm the parent that always wants to give them more food, let them in because they're cold. Mm. I hate to see them shiver. Mm. Yeah, so... I've lost my mind. You're, you're zombified by your dogs, but you get a lot out of it. I do. Right? I find it so rewarding. They are relaxing. I'm not spreading my genes that way, certainly, but I find it so lovely and relaxing and simply the smell of their breath, which is like the bad ocean. (laughs) I love it. Oh, I love bad dog breath. Well, and so, you know, people who live with dogs have more similar microbiomes to their dogs than on average with other entities and people who live in the same house with dogs have more similar microbiomes to each other apparently than people who don't have dogs in their houses so are you telling me that charles pickles darwin has licked inside my husband's mouth and then inside my mouth because yes that's gross but (laughs) (laughs) but i i think that it's you know you might not be spreading your germline genes but your microbial genes they're certainly getting around and probably into some voles that my dogs are chasing. And wow. those, definitely those Yorkies they're trying to front on in the backyard. Yeah, so your microbiome via your dogs, I don't know, maybe. Maybe that's what's going on. Is that why, do you think that's why a lot of people, um, particularly in my generation, who are waiting longer to have kids and maybe never having kids, are having dogs instead? Are they replacement children? That's, I don't know, we're sort of speculating about whether that might be the case. We talked about it with Clive a little bit, and uh, certainly seems like puppies sort of mm, tap in, hijack the parental investment mechanisms with, you know, being so cute and big eyes, and they just make you, like, want to pick them up and keep them warm and feed them. Run across traffic when you see a sheepdog, for example. Mm. Chestnut Street, that's busy that day. It was worth it. It was a sheepdog. <laughs> His tummy. Yeah, so, so okay, so we've established you're pretty zombified by your dogs, but that's okay, right? Completely. Completely zombified. They must dogs. have some big plan that they want me to be an evolutionary psychologist in Oklahoma because I would do whatever they said. Okay, all right. Um, so, uh, let's talk about, like, friends again. So, so dogs get you to uh, take care of them, feed them, make them not cold, attend to their every need, take videos of them eating their paws, all sorts of things. Yes. <laughs> uh, how about friends? Like, what, do, what kinds of things do friends induce friends all of to those, do? All of those minus the paws, probably. <laughs> So if I invest in you, then you're more likely to invest in me, perhaps, and we start this feedback loop of helping one another out in times of need. So if you are sick or somebody peeves you, I can bring you soup or kneecap someone in the parking lot. Would you do that for me? You know I would. Yeah, you're I would. so silly. Thank you. <laughs> I would hide a body in a trunk for you. I would wear a gritty outfit and punch a Nazi for you. I would also just punch the Nazi, but... I'd wear a gritty outfit, too. They can be orthogonal. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's, like, kind of, like, break down the landscape of, like, friend influence. Like, yes. so there can be things that friends are doing for each other that are really, like, mutually 
beneficial sometimes. Yes, there. Whether it's um, a feedback loop like that that brings us closer and closer together, or it's just a tit for tat reciprocity, or it's simply, hey, I need this now. I need this later. There are many ways to get to there. Yeah. Okay. So you could have like the positive, the, like the manipulation, but for mutual benefit, like, um, you know, trying to create a really positive interaction and having like eye contact and responding, like all of those things maybe are, you could say that they're, you know, manipulative in the sense that they're influencing the other party, but they're establishing like a rapport, which maybe makes it more likely to successfully cooperate and and you can get mutual benefit. Yes, absolutely. Okay. But then you've got like the other side, which is friends potentially manipulating each other for their own benefit and like not in the interest of the person who's being manipulated. Yeah. So um, I'm allowed to plug work from Oklahoma State. Ashley Rankin and Jennifer Bird Craven have this paper that they talked about yesterday showing that when women come into the lab and co-ruminate. What's co-rumination? Excuse me. So women come into the lab, they talk about their problems to a pretty extreme extent and continue to talk about that problem for quite some time. So it's like often about mating stuff, right? Like my boyfriend, what's, you know, is why did he text me that he didn't want to meet up tonight and said he wanted to study? Is he really studying or is he going out with... Becky. Becky. It's A lot of it is about mating, to my Uh understanding. I think a lot of it, certainly for me as an old married lady, is about the social landscape and the people that we both know that we have absolutely no mating interest in. Okay. Who is befriending whom? Who okay. is giving what to whom? And is this person friend or foe? Okay. Or simply, this person is foe, let's talk shit about this person. Okay. All right, so co-rumination is like going over these like issues where you're not really sure what's going on and you just kind of keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. Rehash, rehash, move to a different seat in the room, rehash, get a different perspective, rehash. Okay. How do you feel about rehashing and co-rumination, like personally? Personally? Yeah. I wish I did less of it. It's hard for me to not do that. Now I can just sometimes text and say so-and-so is such a bad Mm -hmm. word. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think maybe I do less of it now that I'm older. Probably mm-hmm. not. Okay. Yeah. All right. Certainly not at these conferences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think there are two really cool things going on there, though. Okay. One that they have studied is that the friend with whom you are co-ruminating and you end up synchronizing on a hormonal level and then... 20 minutes later, you're still synchronized to this person, suggesting that maybe they're playing it over in their minds, at least on a physiological level. Something is going on with their bodies based on the co-rumination. You have infected that person with your thoughts and your troubles, and maybe they are trying to rehash it to come to a solution. Hmm. So that could be cool. Okay, so... Two friends are sitting around and talking about something that was, like, really stressful for one friend. Mm-hmm. And just that act of having that conversation 
you could say it zombifies the friend who's listening it and does. gets their physiological systems yeah. like in sync with the person who is talking about the problem. I have zombified you. I have um, gotten you to come up to my level of what the hell is going on here. The same way that mothers can calm down babies and say, oh, yeah, I know it hurts, but come down, chill. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is something is up here. We're going to figure it out. Hmm. So this whole like physiological synchrony thing, we haven't really talked about that so much in the podcast yet. We talked a little bit about stress and how people can manipulate others by stressing them out, because if you stress someone out, then... Um, so Mary Davis was on the last mm-hmm. show, and she talked about how if you stress somebody out, um, when you're stressed, you your thinking actually gets less complex. It's harder to think about complex issues, and that can make you more manipulable. So we talked yeah. a little bit about that, but we haven't really talked about cool. this like physiological synchrony thing, and that like if you are having an intense interaction with someone that there can actually be a sort of contagion of your emotional state, which is then reflected in your hormonal state, your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And your your hormonal state 20 minutes later after you've been separated from one another. You're not even talking. I think that Ashley mentioned that they had a hard time keeping the people from talking uh, during the separation period because they wanted to keep rehashing this. Mm. And... By contrast, it's almost impossible to get men to co-ruminate, and they've tried lots of different ways. Look at this horrible sports game. Let's watch this together, but they'll say, oh, that was a bad catch. But women are hormonally attuned to one another. 20 minutes later, I have zombified you, and mm. don't and you know say how long that lasts. Hormonally attuned, you mean like stress hormones, not like... Cortisol. Not reproductive hormones, necessarily. No, we are not necessarily ovulating at the same time. But maybe we are. I don't know. (laughs) There's a lot of controversy about that, right? (laughs) So, here is my... Can I say a crazy ovulation thing? Yes, please say a crazy ovulation thing. So, there is one good study looking at women's ovulation and moon cycles. Mm -hmm. Because apparently that really does affect whether we're going to ovulate, menstruate, etc., where we are in our cycles. It's because of the light, right? Like the light at night, it has some effect on physiology. So you would, yes, I believe that that's the The mechanism. mechanism. If that's true, A, it would be really cool if we are able to be attuned to the light so that we can be protected from predators and or sneak copulate in the dark. Are we zombified by the moon? We might be zombified by the moon. So it's like now we're in werewolf land. I am telling women ovulating werewolf hussies. You are, apparently. (laughs) You're right, blogger. Um, So not only that, but if you think of, this is where I'm going to liken women to turtles instead of werewolves. Turtles hatch, they're attracted by the light in an area they should go to the ocean, but instead they end up going toward this oh, town. Yeah, right, because they're, they're like sort of looking for the moon reflecting off the water. Yep, to and like instead the water. Yeah. they end up in traffic and in storm drains mm-hmm. away from the water at the beach town. So wouldn't it be cool if our cycles are being influenced, not necessarily good cool, if our cycles are being influenced by all of the artificial light in the environment? Yeah, well, 
there are all sorts of physiological effects of having light at night and it's one of the risk factors for cancer. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's, you know, mechanistically, it seems like there are, well, we know that nighttime light can have all sorts of effects, so. Is it blue light or red light or just simply city lights? What kind of light? Um, so I don't remember exactly what they were measuring in the study, but I, I'm pretty sure it was just correlational, so it was probably of exposure to nighttime light um could it be generally. people yeah. who have to work night shifts and stress so there's and... a bunch of work on sleep disturbance as oh, well right and the gut yeah and the gut but also cancer so yeah so so cool all this stuff with sleep and and light it, it has physiological effects and yeah so the moon the light the werewolves turtles 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 and werewolves, the yeah. next game we'll make. Yeah, so friends then, friends. Yes. And, obvi- okay, so now we're, we're going to figure out where we were, right? We were talking about friends. Friends, there were two things on co-rumination. So one we talked about was the hormonal synchrony yeah. and how I might zombify you right. by talking about Becky and whether or not my boyfriend is dating Becky because you're now attuned to me hormonally. Is your boyfriend dating Becky? I would shiv Becky, first of all. <laughs> Becky better not mess. And yeah. Am I allowed to say husband? Sorry, parents. Um, I wanted all that Lake Crusade from their friends. but um. what, what are you talking about? Lake Crusade from whose friends? My parents' friends don't know that I'm married because I wanted wedding gifts. But Okay, so, so your parents' friends don't know that you're married? Mm-hmm. But your parents know? Mm-hmm. But not their friends? Are you going to like have a wedding? I was planning to, but ain't nobody got time for that shit. You know, I had a wedding. You can swear it's okay. I had a wedding uh, like five years after I actually got married. Yeah, that's that's probably what we'll do. So I wanted to have it at the at SPSP two years from now in Austin because that's where my favorite hotel is. And then everyone I like will already be there for mm-hmm. the pre-conference. Um, but I do. I'll get you some like Crusette. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I can't cook though, so don't really bother. All right. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I just think it's pretty. All right. Well, I'll I'll give you a like croissant and a cooking lesson. Oh, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um. Yes. So, so all right. So you want the like croissant from your parents' friends. So you, so you don't want to say husband on the show. But now everybody it's knows. Everybody knows that yeah. you're married, right? And I mean, your parents' friends probably aren't listening. So I think you're all right. If they do, they didn't make it this far. so i love you uncle bob um so thing one hormonal synchrony thing two and this is something we haven't played with so it's entirely speculative but i firmly believe that co-rumination and venting are pretty similar right okay so if i vent to you about someone being unfair to me and really nice to somebody else and i'm talking about this horrible inequality and this great unfairness, and I'm going on about it, and we know, we both know this person, I believe that I am manipulating you. I am not only perhaps making you feel closer to me, because I am sort of showing you my jugular, I'm telling you my real true thoughts about this mutual friend, which you could use to trip me up later, but additionally, I think I am making you like that person a little bit less. So Mm -hmm. venting feels good. We all know it feels good 
but it's not because, why does it feel good? It's not because we're less angry at the end of it. There's no sort of steam valve. Mm. I, that was the idea. We know that's not true, but we don't know why it feels good. I think it feels good because you like me better, at least relative to that person you now like less that I vented about. So venting feels good because you're changing the other person's state. And in particular, because you're kind of zombifying them. I'm zombifying you to eat the brains of that asshole that I'm venting about. Mm. Or at least... Uh huh. So the prediction is like... him. Venting should feel good in proportion to how much the act of venting gets the person you were venting to to be more your ally and less allied with the person that you're having the issue with. Exactly. You will like me better. You will like that person less. Hopefully. I think that's the fun in venting. Um, we could say Santa Barbara style welfare trade-off ratios. We could just say closeness. I think liking does it just fine. You like me better. You like that person less. And that's what makes venting feel good is changing how someone feels. So that's the prediction that you're making. I think it's, so. Yeah. I think I have infected your feelings toward other people, including me. But if I've infected your feelings and made you like somebody less that I think is kind of shitty kind of not great, then that is awesome. Good for me. I, I am hurting that person's relationship with someone important. I think you've infected me with this hypothesis. I like it. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yay! Yeah, all right. So uh, so here's another question then. From a evolutionary perspective, why are we vulnerable to being manipulated mm. by friends? Like, why not just... Like, be, like, impenetrable, like, not be affected by someone who's trying to influence you. Like, is it is it a good thing to be swayed by what your friends are saying about other people? Or is it, are you just a tool? Wait, uh, am I just a tool for talking shit? Or <laughs> no, 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 no. just a tool in the, like, are, pros use Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, is, is so... <laughs> I was not calling you a tool. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can never tell. <laughs> yeah, so, so our, right, so if like being um, manipulated by mm-hmm. others is just making you a tool of their yes, so intentions, right? Then I simply weaponized you, but I'm not, you're not getting any benefit. Ooh, from weaponized. It. You're, I like weaponized. You weaponize your friends. Does that happen? Do people weaponize their friends? Absolutely. Absolutely. So anytime that I derogate a mutual friend, um, particularly if I were to tell you, and I know that this has happened because A, I've done it uh, when I was much younger, and B, I've had it done to me. But I could tell you something untrue that someone said. You know, um, Becky said that she thought your socks were ugly but probably something more important than that. Or I saw Becky kissing your boyfriend. Even if I just don't like Becky, you're likely to dislike Becky. You're likely to jettison Becky from any social event that you would have. And maybe you'd even shiv Becky. I'm really not liking Becky. I know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't actually know a Becky, so this is fine by me. Okay. All right, so people weaponize their friends by saying that other people said things that they didn't say. There's that. Yeah. They weaponize their friends simply by derogating somebody's reputation. So maybe you're less likely to have Becky hang around if I tell you I don't like her. Um, I think one of the ways that we zombify our friends is saying, um, oh, I don't like that person. If that person's a newcomer, particularly among women, you'll ask. And uh, Jennifer Bird Craven and I have chatted about this quite a bit. Oh, so-and-so. Do we like her? Oh. Yeah. Hmm. So you are infecting your friend with your preconceived feelings about somebody else that maybe you don't want to don't want around. And maybe it would even serve you to have this person around. So I I don't know if I I don't know if it's good or not. Uh to the extent that you can trust me and that I benefit from you benefiting, then yeah, maybe it's maybe it's pretty good to the extent that I am uh a tool in the bad sense of the word, then maybe it's not good and I'm just weaponizing you for my own benefit and at the same time sabotaging relationships that could have been beneficial to you. Are you doing that? Not right now. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit earlier we had a conversation, but I, I just firmly believe that that was, that was good venting. And yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm right, so. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, not, I'm not actually trying to, Anyway, I agree. Um, <laughs> so you have like the possibility. So in friendships, it could be that you're manipulating someone for sort of mutual benefit somehow, mm-hmm. or you could be actually zombifying them. And so if you're the target of this, and like someone is trying to manipulate you, one of your friends is trying to manipulate you. How do you figure out if they're, like, trying to tell you information that you should know so you can protect yourself, right? Because that might be, like, a very cooperative thing to do, to be like, oh, watch out for this person because they, you know, are bad news and they might try to exploit you versus someone telling you that in order to manipulate you so that you don't interact with them or so that you, you know, are sort of tool of their intention to exclude this person. So how do you as like a a human being sort through that incoming information to know are they, is this something that's potentially real information that you should be paying attention to that is it's in your benefit to know it versus it's being used to exploit you or manipulate you? So I don't think we have any idea how people do that. Uh, best guess you sort through the landscape of everybody's relationships and you have an idea of how reliable that information is but essentially I'm still saying we don't know and that's mm-hmm. topology it's just that does that which is the same thing it does the same thing mm-hmm. um can am I allowed to tell an anecdote yeah of course yeah, yeah so um I went to a women's college and I left that college and Living in Philadelphia, it was really awesome. I had a roommate who graduated the year before me and a best friend of 20 years and another roommate from also from Bryn Mawr. Um, They would tell me so much nasty shit about one another. Hmm. 
And I thought, wow, we're really close if you are telling me these horrible things you think about somebody that is our really good friend and roommate. You must like me better than you like this person. We must have a closer relationship. I didn't think for a second that they were probably doing the same thing, talking about me to our other roommate. Mm. Turns out they were. Um, and they're horrible people and I hope they're really unhappy. And occasionally I'll look on Facebook to make sure that they are and they are. So all is well. Um, but I mean, it was a two hour G chat conversation about how they wished my mother would die. So I'd be alone. It was intense. Oh, wow. Yeah, don't have it on my computer next time, Mia. Um, so she was never very bright. Um, so I don't know if I have figured out whether or not information is trustworthy. You would imagine that if you saw two strangers um, having a conversation about one of their really close friends and about how horrible that really close friend was, maybe you would think that the these friends are untrustworthy because they're really close friends with this person they're saying horrible things about. But when it's your friend saying horrible things about your mutual friend to you, I think it just makes you feel like you two are closer. That's interesting. So, so this this like venting thing, like talking mm-hmm. bad about somebody, there maybe there's some sort of interesting vulnerability there, right? Like if you're the recipient of like hearing someone say a lot of bad stuff, like you can feel like, oh, this is reflective of intimacy. Mm-hmm. But it might also be reflective of someone who uses this strategy in order to create intimacy in general. Yes. So you should maybe, like, if we're going to do, like, take-home messages, like, if someone talks a lot of shit about other people to you, you should ask yourself, are they talking shit about you to other people? I think that would be a wise question to ask yourself. There are some people to whom you can bare your neck, Tell your secrets. Mm-hmm. If this person is telling everyone else's secrets, are you really their number one best friend? Or are you simply one person to whom they vent and they're doing it to other people? Mm. I've described this situation before to some men. Um, and there were women in the room at the time. And the guy said, so wait you really don't know and it seems pretty fraught and you could be friends for a while and you disclose all of this important information and it could be used against you, kind of a hostage-taking situation. I'll give you a cousin, you give me a cousin, then I'll give you your kidnapped sister, then you give me the kidnapped sister. But with information. But with information. Okay. Um, But you never really know what's going on. This sounds complicated and horrible and draining. This sounds so difficult. And all at the same time, the women in the room were like, yes! <laughs> so, mm-hmm. There's something kind of vindicating in giving words to what is going on in our heads. Um, but I think you and I and some other people are starting now to study the incredible complexity of it that people might have not realized existed or didn't take it seriously or mm-hmm. simply didn't care about. Yeah. All right, so I've got a couple other questions. So one is, what is going on with social media and friendships? Like, is that changing 
how people are able to manipulate each other in friendships or is it changing like our emotional responses in a way that makes us you know more unhappy or more happy or or, so how is social media changing this landscape of friendship so one part of it that is kind of neat is that we are holding on to friends longer because we can see what they're doing and follow them so maybe our friendships are not something you're doing with Jessica Ayers maybe our friendships are not dissolving at the same rate that's kind of interesting that we can keep those peripheral friends But I'm really interested in the shared knowledge aspects of social media, who gets to see what I'm doing, because Facebook, your Facebook wall, your Instagram, um, I don't know about the thing with the ghost. Yeah. The ghost thing. What is that one? Doesn't matter. I'm old. Yeah, Uh, we're we're like old now. You know what the (laughs) ghost one is. Okay. Whatever those newfangled kids are up to. Um... You control what people see about you in a way that I don't think you can do face-to-face. There's multi-channel communication, face-to-face. But on your Facebook wall, you are, unless you're posting a Facebook Live video, you're talking about um, a picture that you posted where you looked just right, you deleted 17 other pictures because you didn't like how you looked in those, and maybe you also filtered it and photoshopped Mm -hmm. it. Same thing with Instagram. Mm -hmm. So people are probably seeing often unattainable happiness. I wonder if kids now aren't pretty savvy that everyone else is yeah. showing unattainable savviness. It's almost like the, um, the shit-talking we just discussed. Do you, you have to ask yourself, is this person showing real happiness to everyone, or is this person, is this person genuinely that happy? Or is this person only that happy to me and their audience on Instagram? Mm -hmm. It would be cool if you could... Okay, this is my crazy speculative thing about social media. Um, Robin Dunbar and some other people did this neat study with macaques and social groups. And macaques that lived in larger groups had larger social brain areas over development. Oh, Really cool stuff. So your brain gets bigger if you're in a bigger group, if you're a macaque. Those areas of your brain, yeah. So I wonder if social media and the advent and pervasiveness of it is not maybe changing our brain structures. How many people we can keep track of michael varna mentioned how many faces we can maybe it's okay so was it that our face area? that part of the brain that's responsible for social stuff was bigger and everything else was the same or was it like crowding out other stuff i have no idea i don't remember and i should look that up because that would be really cool so if our friends are eating yeah. our brains, if so, I, oh, I don't know. Our right? friends are eating it. That would be really neat. Yeah. yeah. And maybe if we have GPSs and Facebook on our phones, a la Michael Varnum's prediction, our hippocampal areas will shrink and our fusiform gyrus areas will grow and we'll just be, our brains will be eaten by our friends. Wow, you're blowing my mind or eating my brain or <laughs> I would eat your brain. Your brain's probably, like, I wish in a Highlander sense I could 
eat your brain. I don't know what that means, and I don't think I want to, so let's move Sorry. on. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Um, all right, so what is the friend apocalypse? Like, if we take, like, what we know about, like, friends and how friends can manipulate each other, mm-hmm. like, what is the worst-case scenario, like, of the world of friends manipulating each other? Like, what would it be like in the apocalypse of friends zombifying each other? Can it be being stuck in an elevator with the women you knew in high school that didn't like you? Oh. That said they liked you, but really didn't like you. Yeah, that sounds bad. That would just, but that's maybe more hell than apocalypse. Um, so tell me more. What do you mean by apocalypse? Okay, so, so we always sort of ask this question of like, if you take this, this kind of zombification that we're looking at in mm-hmm. episode. So today we're talking about friends and friends manipulating each other. And um, let's take like the negative aspect of that, right? Okay. Like the manipulating for, you know, mm-hmm. your own benefit. You're like manipulating your friends for your own benefit. You're getting manipulated by your friends for their own benefit. And if we just like amp that up and say like, you know, friends can manipulate each other, you know, Mm-hmm. to the nth degree um what does the world look like when friends can control each other's behavior so intensely um a less hierarchical jonestown or manson family <laughs> <laughs> that really truly i, I uh-huh. know those people are really charismatic and there is some hierarchy there and also a lot of mating involved none of those things need to be involved uh, neither hierarchy nor mating but the ability to influence people to do your bidding. You get all the goodies and very few of the risks. I think that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's uh, it's kind of hard to think about what would happen if everyone were able to manipulate everyone. Oh, I don't even, yeah, I in my head I automatically assumed that some people were really good manipulators and other people simply didn't have that skill. Right, right. Yeah, because it's different if it's like the friend apocalypse because... Like five percent of people mm-hmm. like super good at manipulating their friends, and everyone else doesn't do it. But if everyone is manipulating everyone, then like I mean, would just like the world halt because people are just trying to manipulate each other, and then they're just like stuck, and that because one is trying to manipulate the other, but like they don't have aligned interests, and so they're spending all of their energy trying to manipulate each other and getting nowhere. So either. Nothing would happen exactly like that. Yeah. Everything would halt or we're in it. Oh, we're in the friend apocalypse. And we're manipulating each other all the time. And maybe we don't even realize that it's like gravity. We cried once when our friends were mean to us in high school and now it's just normal. <laughs> <laughs> That's so dark. Oh, man. Oh, uh, so, so if we kind of then like come full circle back to... The sex differences thing, Mm -hmm. I mean, not to put words in your mouth, but you're almost saying if you're female, you're maybe more likely to be actually in it, in the friend apocalypse right now. If you're male, maybe you're not in the friend apocalypse. Maybe you're in it, but you have this immunity. It just doesn't affect your affect. Hmm. Hmm. So... There's the, like, manipulation side, and then there's the vulnerability to being manipulated, and females maybe are a little more zombifiable by friends. Is that the idea? Yeah, we have to react quickly. We're the fighter planes. Mm -hmm. The guys are um, zombified, but how could you tell the difference? They're still just 
uh, punching each other and then playing video games together. Such a horrible, I don't mean to stereotype men. Yeah, like, this is not at all stereotyping with sexes, so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't study that or anything. Yeah. Well, and just to kind of like go a little bit big picture, we're sort of mm-hmm. talking, you know, tongue in cheek about sex differences stuff. But I mean, we all know and fully appreciate that there's huge diversity in how people are right across, you know, people who identify as male and people who identify as female and some, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, there's a hugely overlapping distribution there. So we're kind of like painting these like stereotypes to oh, yeah. sort it's, of be like kind of funny, but really in reality, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. spectrum, right? And you have like, you know, we, we've sort of joked about this, about how our friendship is more guy-like Pretty because we don't. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not constantly monitoring to make yeah. sure that everything that, you know. Are you trusting me? Can I trust you? Can I yeah, trust yeah, you as yeah. much? It's not, um, uh, so yeah, it's not one pink room at one the end of the hall. And then at the total other end of the hall is a blue room. It's rather a room with a whole lot of purple and a lot of men and women are in the middle. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's really cool. And what I'm planning to do with some students of mine right now actually explore non-heterosexual friendships so mm-hmm. asking the question that they've been asking for years and years and years in mating of how do non-heterosexual men and women act in their friendships do they act more quote-unquote male typical so more toward mm-hmm. the bluer end of the hallway do they act more female typical more toward the pink end of the hallway so mm-hmm. both in friendships and in aggression because mm-hmm. there's the stereotype of the very bitchy gay man but a lot of the literature doesn't actually take into account the fact that there are tons of rich categories of gay men um, that I can thankfully list very many of thanks to this research. Cool. Um, so one one last question, which is, given all the stuff that we know about friendship and how friends interact with each other, how they potentially manipulate each other, how can we be better friends to others like are there take-home messages about like how we can act and be in our friendships in order to be a better friend take-home messages wow this is the most applied I think I might ever get okay (laughs) um I guess we could ask ourselves when we are about to co-ruminate and complain and rehash Are we doing it for us? Will it really make us feel better? Are we doing it simply to um, knock out the person that we're talking about? Are we doing it simply to manipulate our friend so that our friend doesn't dislike that person? I don't don't know if I believe Mm -hmm. that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I would think like sometimes, so with co-ruminating so if it is that like what's what you're trying to do if you bring something up for co-ruminating is to kind of get that person on your side a little more I don't know like maybe sometimes being a good friend is like letting yourself be manipulated a little bit about it yeah saying do we like her and when your friend says no we don't like her maybe you don't like her I don't know that would be a really good friend. Uh, good flies in the face of all the high school 
after school TV I've ever watched about being your own person, but you'd be a good friend. So is there like a conflict between being a good friend and being a good person then? This is, I don't like this. Yeah, what I don't, are we talking yeah. about? Um, <laughs> let yourself be manipulated and don't be a good person. And <laughs> no, 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 it's not this dark. Yeah, so can you... Or maybe, like, sorry, maybe ahead. it is this dark and people talk about friendship as this solely positive thing and maybe they've been zombified by the idea that friendship is a wonderful, beautiful, some Aristotelian ideal. And in reality, just like everything else, it's a little bit dirty and sleazy, too. Oh, man. Gritty. It can be gritty. Okay. Gritty? <laughs> I can... Philly. Gritty. So mm-hmm. both of us lived in Philly. So gritty, I can deal with. I don't know about dirty, though. Because, yeah. I mean, the fact is, like, there are, <laughs> there are a lot of, like, mutually beneficial things from that we get from friendships that don't necessarily like impose costs on others outside of the friendship, right? Yes. I didn't mean dirty as in a bad way. Dirty as in it has good elements and it has what people would call bad elements. Uh-huh. So uh, the way that anthropologists used to want to think of the ancient Maya or even the Yanomamo as these noble creatures that really, oh, they're just all positive. They don't kill. They don't murder. Everything is great. Maybe that's how we've been thinking about friendship for a really long time. But in reality, there's some manipulation and there is some murder. And maybe we think it's bad, but maybe in the long run, it's really just well-designed. Okay, so friendship can have these positive elements, but it can also potentially have these negative elements where you have individuals manipulating each other for their own gain and hijacking each other's nervous systems and, and all of that. Um, and it's kind of this balance of, you know, how do you engage in friendship in order to have those mutually beneficial interactions? Mm-hmm. Pushing yourself to be better, better, being supported, all of those good things. Yeah. But well. then on the other hand, not number one, being vulnerable to getting manipulated and, like, checking yourself that you're not being manipulative to your friends, right? I like the way you're saying that. I agree with that entirely. Yes, yeah. That is a nice way to put it. Hmm. Can we do that? Hmm. Do you think we can do that? I have no idea. I don't think I can do that as a person. <laughs> but I imagine they're better men than I, so... Well, Jamie, thank you so much for talking with us on Zombified for today's episode. It was really fun, and good luck um, with all the work that you're doing on friendship and the work that some of it is stuff we're doing together, which is super exciting. So I don't know how a couple months, couple years, we'll have some papers out there maybe. Yes, tons yeah. of them, and they'll Lots be of awesome. Them. Yeah. yeah. We'll manipulate each other into writing papers. You know what? Let's do that. Let's agree <laughs> to manipulate each other into getting some of those papers written. Right. I would clap, but I don't want to. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. This is really cool. This is a fun conversation. I agree. Thank you so much for being here. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow.
All right, it is shout out time. Thank you to the Department of Psychology and to ASU for supporting this podcast, especially the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics and my lab, the Actipus Lab, also the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter and Instagram as Zombified Pod. We're on Patreon as Zombified and our website is zombified.org. Please consider supporting us if you love what we're doing. We're educational. There's no ads. We don't believe in zombifying people with ads. So um, think about it. Support us $1 a month. It'll help us make more episodes. And yes, so thank you to all of you for sharing this bit of your brains for the last hour. And thanks to all of the brains who helped to make this podcast. Thanks to Tal Ram, who does our sound, Neil Smith, who does our illustrations, and Lemmy, the artist behind the song Psychological, which you can listen to on our website if you like. And finally, I will share some of my brains at the end of the episode now, like I do at the end of every episode. So friends, yes, I'm going to offer a few ideas about friends that really have not much to do with my research in any way, but just something that I've been thinking about, which is in this episode with Jamie, we talked a lot about how, you know, we're sort of really driven to have these deep interactions and engagements with our friends, or at least pay attention to them, engage with them. And I wonder how much social media and social media companies are essentially free riding off of that because, you know, we've kind of given up a lot of our autonomy with regard to sort of maintaining our relationships and even building new ones by engaging so deeply with social media. Like, I'm just thinking in the last couple of weeks, I've been traveling and met some people who were cool. And rather than like, you know, exchanging phone numbers or emails, they want to like just connect on Instagram or on Facebook. And yeah, that's, that's fine. And that's cool. But then there's no way to actually reach each other except by going into Instagram or Facebook or whatever social medium you use to connect with other people. So that then like gives a lot of power to those companies. And it also means that in order to reach out to those friends and engage with those friends, we have to give up a piece of our attention, right? Because when you go on those platforms, you can sometimes see ads, right? And you often do see ads. And so we're kind of unwittingly paying a lot of our attention. And I guess there's a reason why it's called paying attention because it really is, you know, attention is something really valuable. And like, if you give it up, you're giving up something valuable. So, you know, we're, we're giving up a lot of our attention to these channels um, because that's where our friends are and we want to engage with them, develop those relationships, maintain those relationships, build new relationships. And then the social media companies get a little piece of our brains because we have to go to those platforms in order to find people. Okay, I guess that was much more 
of a rant than a story or a connection to my work or a wild speculation, but um, I guess that's what it's going to be for today. So <laughs> thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. Crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way I do. Okay, so like if there's some genes in me that are also in others. The other cat. Then. And then the head cat. So yeah. then... I believe they're cats. Both ones made out of cats. <laughs> cat robots. I, I don't know what we're talking about now, yeah. but maybe it has to do with Toxo somehow. <laughs> now it does. Now it does. Um, okay, so so like Voltron is actually like a abstract thing that is all of your genes. No, I don't even. I don't get it. Can we delete that part? We can delete that okay, part. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Let's yes. start, let's start again. Yay. Okay. We just, Yay. All right. Sorry. So.